Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week I'm joined by Katie Perrier, who was Theresa May's Director of Communications in Downing Street until the election was called and has joined the Times for the campaign. Cully Cole Balligan is a research director at Ipsos Mori, plus Times columnist and podcast regular David Aronovich. We'll be discussing what the public really thinks about immigration targets, why Theresa May is calling on her husband for help, uh, plus has the left got anything to learn from Emmanuel Macron. Before we get stuck into all that though, we can go live to Blackpool where Times columnist Robert Crampton is on his week-long tour of Labour heartlands. Hello Matt. How is it? You're you're out and about talking to real-life members of the public. I certainly am. Blackpool today, yesterday was in Middlesbrough and uh, the area around it, including Hartlepool, Peter Mandelson's old seat. And the day before that, I was in my hometown of Hull uh, and we've got Bury and a bit of West Yorkshire to go. Uh, and, well, the Heartland's no longer would be the headline uh, from what I'm hearing. I mean, obviously, it's all very anecdotal. Uh, and it depends on who will talk to you and who you bump into. But I'm finding that it's very difficult to find a Labour voter, a former Labour voter, who is intending to vote Labour this time. And what what are they putting that down to? Number two is Brexit. I mean, these are we deliberately chose areas to go to which had got a high had a high Brexit vote last uh, summer, uh, and where Labour's therefore particularly vulnerable to Tories hoovering up uh, UKIP seats from the year before uh so we're in areas which are sort of 67 68 69 percent for leave having said that the brexit is the number two issue that i'm hearing the number one issue is jeremy corbyn by some distance and the more traditionally working class if you like people are the less they tend to like or trust uh the leader of the labor party and where are they going? Are they are they just sort of fed up and going to stay home, or are they switching? A combination of the two. Some are saying they'll vote Tory. Some are saying Tory's going to win anyway, so we won't bother. 
I just, I mean, a combination. It's difficult to say. I think some of these, I mean, some of these areas are certainly Hull, because I know about Hull is historically registers very low turnouts anyway. They're barely above 50%, I think, in 2015. Same in Middlesbrough. Uh, I think we're going to see really low turnouts uh, in in some of those areas, which uh, may be enough to let the Tories in. Uh, but some of the yeah, some of these Labour voters are going to are saying they will vote Tory, and they're saying all the things that you expect them to say, which is, you know, my dad will be turning in his grave, but I'm I'm going to I'm going to do this. I don't I can't risk Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. Katie, how does that make you feel? That the in places where the Tories were, you know, people wouldn't even utter the name, never mind discuss the idea they might be voting for them. That the, the Tories are making inroads there. I mean, I remember 15 years ago when Theresa May um, stood up in front of the Conservative Party conference and said about the nasty party, um, and 15 years later it's actually an embarrassment to say that you're going to vote Labour, and people feel mm. that there is, I mean, I don't know whether it's the Conservative Party now, it's the height of fashion. I certainly um, remember the times when it was re- really bad, but uh, I, I think that this, they're, they're voting not just for a Conservative Party, they're voting for a Theresa May, they're voting for that kind of leadership that if they voted Brexit, they wanted to see it delivered the most successfully as possible and that's what she's standing on so i'm not surprised at all but um it's i think it's very interesting as to who you know how people voted before whether or not they voted ukip and whether or not they're going to you know continue to vote ukip this time around well but are you picking up ukip at all i mean this is, it wasn't that long ago people were talking about the sort of areas you're going to were, were no right for ukip i mean i haven't uh, heard anyone it's almost as if they, it's almost as if ukip doesn't exist anymore uh, <laughs> which is it, which is probably it, about right but yeah yes it's not it's not people saying uh Oh, I used to be Labour, but then I went UKIP. I'm going to stick with UKIP, or or uh, or, or I'm going to vote UKIP to keep keep Brexit on track. Uh, it's just a, it's just a non-issue. Uh, people are someone saying whether either reluctantly sticking with Labour or not voting or voting for it. And it, the Lib, Dem, Lib Dems and UKIP just don't get mentioned. I was going to say, so it is just a straight two-horse race. The smaller parties, Lib Dems, UKIP. That's what it sounds like. But then again, the, these constituencies I'm going to are sort of quite specifically selected with that in mind. You know, they, they, they're places where Labour is, where the Tories ran second uh, in 2015 where, and where Labour is vulnerable. And, and just very quickly, to what extent is this a pro-Theresa May? I'm not. Uh, I think there's some, there's some truth in that. I, I think people certainly prefer Theresa May to Jeremy Corbyn, but I think they might prefer the guy who runs the local post office to Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> I think it's I think it's more anti-Corbyn. People have had a look at Corbyn and they think and and and, and what struck me is that it's, this is not all about Brexit. It's it's actually you hear actual issues of national security and the fact that the prime minister has to defend the country as a sort of as a, as a kind of prerequisite of the job. You hear that more than you do uh, hear about Brexit. Well, Robert, it's really good to speak to you. Um, I'll let you continue with your tour. You can catch yeah, Blackpool awaits. Yeah, Blackpool awaits. Go and get a stick of rock for us. Uh, we'll Cheers, speak to guys, you soon. I will do. Well, you can catch all of Robert's reports from the campaign coalface in the Times and online at thetimes.co.uk. So let's turn our attention to the Conservatives and Katie Perrier. Looking from the outside, everyone would assume that Philip May has taken the traditional role of dutiful husband to the powerful Prime Minister. But to think that his role is confined to manning the phone banks and folding the leaflets would be a mistake. He's her absolute rock and the person she turns to for advice and support more than anyone else. Their relationship in this mad world of politics is a lesson to us all. So Katie, it's interesting. Normally party leaders only wheel out the other half when they're really in trouble. Gordon Brown did it, Ed Miliband did it. Um, but she's, she's turning to Philip and he's... 
taken this decision to appear on the one show um, how significant is it do you think Cause it feels like a very un-Theresa May thing to do well, it's certainly not necessary because if Theresa, if you can read the polls, Theresa May is heading for a landslide. And so um, it's something that potentially they've thought about as showing more to her personality and more into her private life because she is a very private person. She doesn't really court the cameras and, uh, and the column inches. And so this is an opportunity to see, you know, Theresa May in a whole. What you're voting for isn't just this kind of strong, stable prime minister, as she'd like you to, to kind of to, to, to think <laughs> that's about. A, that's the last one. You're not allowed any more. Not allowed any it's it's much more uh, about Philip May and what he brings to that relationship and political relationships in Westminster are notoriously difficult um, and I think there's something quite special that, 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 that from my experience the more you'll see Philip May the more you'll like him Is he sort of more gregarious than she is? A bit more fun? Is, it, is he going to be more value on a chat show sofa <laughs> than she is? When you have dinner with them, uh, as we do with newspaper editors now, every now and then, actually they're really good fun. And um, Theresa May isn't the kind of boring person that you may think. We would often have witty exchanges in meetings. But they are a really nice couple. And the thing is about them is that they don't have this huge ego. Of course, in doing politics, there must be some ego going on. But there isn't this huge ego that you might have got with Cherie Blair, for example. They are worlds apart. Philip May is kind of uh, reassuring, but not a walkover. Uh, is there by her side, but, you know, I'd often say to, to the Prime Minister, oh, you know, I like that scarf or I like that handbag or whatever, and she'd answer, oh, Philip bought that for me. Um, and uh, he's he's definitely someone who is you know, really driven politically. He will man the phone b- banks, he will fold the leaflets, but he doesn't need the limelight. And uh, I think they're, they're, you know, complement each other really well. Kelly, from a sort of polling perspective, does this make any difference to what how voters might vote come polling day? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, as Katie said, I mean Theresa May is way ahead in the polls anyway, and I think the other um, notable thing with Theresa May is her brand is much stronger than her party. So 60% say they like Theresa May, but only 38% say they like the Conservative Party. So she has got that sort of personal brand so you know i think showing the human side of a politician never um you know uh, it does any harm but certainly i think she's so way ahead that it's unlikely to damage her in any way shape or form but d- does that not make it more high risk that actually a, a, a sort of safe boring campaign mm. uh it, it is safer for her than trying to do things which would be out of the order which she doesn't need to do <clears throat> Possibly, but as I said, I don't think anything she does is really going to make a huge difference in what happens on June the 8th. David, you don't look like a man gripped by the prospect of seeing more Philip May and finding out what he's wearing. No, I couldn't care less. <laughs> do, why do you think po- politicians feel the need to do it? I don't know why politicians do, but I know why this politician's doing it, I think, because it sure beats having to answer any questions about difficult issues. So she's not, and she won't. And instead, what you get to feed this great kind of, you know, ask our, our great media machine, and sure enough, we're being fed it, is Philip May sitting on a sofa talking about what a nice guy he is. Uh, he won't run anything. He's of, I mean, I completely take Katie's point that actually the Prime Minister might turn to him for advice. But since he won't tell us what that advice is, and she won't tell me what, tell us what it was, what it is when it's given, and she might not even tell us when she is inclined to take it, and she might even not even tell us that she's decided about it. Then in that case, it's all it's all it's fluff, um, and it will occupy space, and it will stop us doing our jobs. It, it has been striking during the uh, campaign the very controlled Theresa May um, machine. 
in contrast, actually, Jeremy Corbyn is a bit more out and about. He's chatting to people. He was talking to people about Arsene Wenger and football. And he does seem to be trying to be more accessible. Is there any value in that, do you think? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, the, the, I, mean I, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn is doing any great kind of very big sit-down interviews in which you delve into. I mean, what he likes to do, Theresa May likes to stick her husband on the, on the sofa, and Jeremy Corbyn likes to go and talk to rallies of people who already agree with him and clap him, etc. And they get convinced that because they're all so fervent together that in fact the polls must be wrong and that actually they're going to close the gap, as he famously said with the Tories, when in fact it's almost certainly heading for the landslide that everybody says that it is, precisely for the reason Robert Crampton gives, which is that the more people look at him, the more they think that he's a dosser and they don't want him. Um, uh, the trouble is, we have a problem, don't we? I mean, we've got to do this for weeks more until the election. We all know what the result's <laughs> going to be. Uh, the, the most interesting thing about Jeremy Corbyn that we've seen in the last two days is that it's been said that he intends to stay as Labour leader even if he goes down to a historic defeat the like of which has never been seen before. That tells you everything you need to know. Gully, is there any evidence of... I don't know what you'd call them, a shy Corbyn supporter or that people are sort of saying at the moment that they're going to vote Labour uh, that they're not going to vote Labour and they're very cross about Jeremy Corbyn but in the end they'll fall sort of back into line and do what they've done in the past? Not necessarily. Um, as Robert's report said, I think the the worry is, um, and we found this in 2015, and to some extent this is why maybe the, the polls got it wrong, is, you know, Labour supporters are younger and less likely to turn out to vote. So I think that's the, the problem that the Labour Party um, faces. And also picking up on the point that David made, when people vote, they, they aren't just voting on the leader, um, they're voting on the policies and the party. But what we've seen in our work over you know, comparing 2015 to now is the leadership is playing a much bigger role. And Theresa May has a much bigger lead over Jeremy Corbyn than David um, Cameron did over Ed Miliband. And that's sort of sticking out as a much bigger part of the sort of triangle that people use when they decide how to vote. I vote in the... Um <clears throat> times at the weekend that actually Theresa May isn't that good and she's certainly not as good as the polls are suggesting and she's be, she is being flattered by her opponents um, do you think that was fair criticism Katie? I think that we I've faced this uh, a number of times having worked for Theresa May number 10 Downing Street the, uh, the political cycle of a Prime Minister is years to come so I've always wanted to play, play it cool and not feed everything in one go and that suits her because also she's not someone that wants to court the media or court big business she does it her way and so you might think as a kind of commentator that there's not much there but at the same time why would why would you give any more than you already need to because well, this well, is this enough isn't the as it is. now that because it's a general election people do people deserve to know before she gets handed this huge mandate that we're led to believe it's coming. But Theresa May would always say, you know, people when I knock on doors, people never say, I need to see more of you on TV, Prime Minister. I need to hear more about what you think on this. They actually say, well, you know, we give you a job and we want you to bloody well get up, go on and get go and do it. It's only this village, this Westminster <laughs> village, that but wants to be continually fed more. But, in a, but there is a difference between <laughs> normal peacetime of her being Prime Minister in an election campaign, answering proper questions and telling us what she wants to do is is important isn't it it is and so i think what we're going to see in the next few weeks is more policy kind of based uh 
campaigning around issues that the Prime Minister has kind of given inkling to in the first 10 months uh, as PM in number 10. Uh, you know, we've seen this week about energy capping and energy prices. There'll be issues on mental health, on housing and others moving forward, which uh, will, will give more people an understanding of what exactly the Conservatives were going to promise over the next election. Brexit negotiations are going to be over in two years if we believe our politicians. <laughs> We've got three more years. You know, if she doesn't actually deliver on a domestic agenda, she would have failed. And she knows that. And so the social reform that she said about on the steps of number 10 is just as important to her now as it was then. Let's move on to uh, immigration and Cully. Public opinion on immigration is never just a numbers game. We know it is high on the list of voters' concerns, but as Theresa May recommits to the failed promise to reduce net migration, the majority of voters, including almost 60% of Tory voters, don't think she'll be able to keep it. And even if she did meet the target, there is little evidence it would make people any happier. So this was the target to reduce net migration to tens of thousands in the 2010 manifesto and they didn't meet it. It was in the 2015 manifesto and they didn't meet it. And now we're told it's going to be in the 2017 uh, manifesto as well. Uh, I was really struck by this piece you wrote for Redbox, sort of picking through people's views on immigration. We know that immigration is very high on people's concerns, but people just don't believe this target. No, they they don't. But equally, um, they like targets so <laughs> this is this is the strange position that the public kind of occupies on this issue um, and you know that for throughout sort of David Cameron, Cameron's premiership around four in five people supported a target um, and similar proportions have actually uh, didn't think it was actually going to be achieved that's actually dropped about seven seventy percent of people now so you could potentially argue that Brexit has reduced people's scepticism by about 10 points but nevertheless the majority of public just don't think it's going to be met. Katie what is the point of putting it back in the manifesto apart from it being something that she was personally responsible for at the Home Office? Well, it shows a commitment, a long-term commitment, but actually more, more important than that... It's not the long-term that, economic plan, it got longer and longer. More important than that, it's about the choice um, and uh, having that control yourself. And uh, although Theresa May was not kind of this big leave campaigner and didn't go on that mantra of, you know, take back control, actually on immigration, what they know from their own focus groups and polling is that people just want the British government to have control over this issue. And once they've got control, then they can hold them to account and so up until now you know there's a whole whole number of reasons why that hasn't come down that's not been achieved uh, which any Tory politician would come on and tell you about but actually what, what the voters want is to know that okay well it's now your, cho- your responsibility we now have the choice and the choice to, to let in who we want and who we don't and you know what, what we will see in future I think is uh, some immigration policies around um, sectors and around exactly you know who can help us build this you know prosperous global Britain post Brexit and this whole industrial strategy is very much linked to who's going to come into this country and, and who isn't Stalin would be proud <laughs> <laughs> Go on, David. Explain. Well, I mean, uh, 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 depends on the level of complexity that they are planning. I mean, let's uh, let's let, let, what they're planning to do. In, in other words, is they're planning to say we will have state planning for who companies can and can't recruit and bring into the country at such a level 
that we can effectively bring immigration, net immigration, down to the tens of thousands. Uh, and to do that, you have effectively to cut immigration, uh, not just net immigration in the country in half. And by the way, the target also depends on how many people go out at any given time, uh, which makes it uh, which makes it additionally problematic. There's no way that they can fulfil this without, firstly, hugely difficult and complex series of planning arrangements and so on. And secondly, if they really intend to use it to reduce immigration, and that's my question to you, Katie, do they intend to use it to reduce immigration? And if so, by how much? Then in that case we will become impoverished by it. Tax, immigrants tend to be higher ta- levels of taxpayers. They pay more tax. They tend to be younger. We have a big demographic problem in this country. We are of an ageing population. Is Theresa May set on significant reductions of immigration in this country? Never mind the control stuff. We've got all that. We're going to bank all that, etc. After the election, all that's going to be moot. You'll have all the control you want. What you're going to do with the control is the question. And that's what I would like to ask her rather than have to put up with her husband on the one show. <laughs> Uh, Just picking up on a point of Katie, I mean, I think the current net migration, as David said, is that's the the number of people coming in minus the number going out. The the official figures say it's about uh, 273,000. Now, what's important to remember, pretty much half of that is non-EU migration, which is what the government does control so and can even control. If, even if nobody came from Europe, Europe, they'd still yeah. be missing the target. It's yeah, what Theresa May has been controlling. controlling for, and that was what that's the element that you can control. But also, a, another point that back in 1995 when net migration was just about 60,000 so lower than the current sort of target um, people were just as unhappy with the government's handling of immigration two thirds then wanted immigration reduced and that's virtually unchanged so I think there's some issue about how governments manage it and how it's communicated and even if you tell people you know we ask people regularly what um, the proportion of my immigrants is to the country they vastly overestimate it and I think there's a that there's a trust issue about believing statistics believing you know uh, this number of people coming in and I think there's 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 an element of trust that is lost and potentially will be further lost if the targets are maintained but not met Katie isn't there an opportunity for Theresa May given her lead in the polls given the likely outcome on June the 8th to be honest with voters and say we can't get it down to the tens of thousands or aiming for the tens of thousands is daft because it might end up actually going for it might end up harming the economy and she could do it on lots of other things with social care or the nhs so she could be big and bold and radical but also honest about the big challenges facing the country rather than in this stupid target that hasn't been met for seven years and won't be met it's really difficult because if you look back at how people voted in the referendum campaign, it was quite clearly she had a message that they wanted control over immigration. Uh, I think that the general public, however, are quite fickle on immigration because when you say, oh, well, that means that actually we're going to clamp down on people coming to work from Australia and us coming to work from India. Oh, no, 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 no. We like those kind of people. We just don't like the others. Yeah. And people are extremely fickle about who they want to come and work in this country. And of course, when you're trying to build this global Britain and you're going around the world and you on these international tri- trips as I accompanied the Prime Minister on many of them uh, the first thing they talk to you about when you arrive is okay so you want to do some business with us you want to do some free trade okay one of the first things we want to talk to you about is who you're going to let into your country and how can they they upskill and work in your country and how can they build businesses and all sorts um, and if you're trying at the same time to keep a lid on that it's really difficult Okay, well, I'm sure it's an issue we will come back to uh, over the coming weeks and probably years as well with uh, Brexit. But let's move on now to uh, Times columnist David Aronovich, who is looking across the channel. 
Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Yeah, Macron was always the favourite. Yeah, many supported him to keep out Le Pen. Yeah, he has no parliamentary majority. But what a victory for all that. Out of left field, no party apparatus, refusing to compromise with the populist themes of the moment, two-thirds of the votes. Are there lessons to be learned here in Britain from the en marche experience? It is striking, uh, David, too, because he he had been ahead, and particularly then in all of the polls when he was in the straight runoff with the pen, everybody assumed he was going to win, but it sort of underplays the significance of a guy who 12 months ago was basically unknown. He was a minister in the socialist government. He then quit to set up his own party and everybody laughed at him. And now look at him. They're not laughing now. No, they're not laughing now. Two-thirds, as I said, two-thirds of the vote. One of the things that's really interesting, we have become entranced by this kind of spectacle of the populist vote, the left behinds, and so on. And and there is an important political theme there, no question about it. And there's an important question of political cohesion but but I was listening uh, to a radio report the the day after Macron's victory in which somebody had gone to find voters in the most pro-national front part of France and I thought this is a really weird thing to do (laughs) why wouldn't you find an average voter in a pro-Macron part of France in order to try and find out what's really going. In other words, the kind of the narrative of how you must kind of give everything to the to the UKIPs and the left behinds and so on has become so strong that we're in danger. This is something I think that Theresa May probably does kind of quite, quite understand, um, that you lose sight of where actually the majority of people are or actually can be. Now, Macron, firstly, when he was, uh, as soon as he was elected president, uh, he... He, he took his victory speech to the sounds of the ode to joy <laughs> the European flag that's, and this is despite being told that the French were actually very cross about Europe he stressed what was good about immigration and the realities of immigration whilst at the same time saying look I can see that you're angry you've had a bad time and so on he went to the Whirlpool factory famously which was being closed down because the jobs were going to Poland Marine Le Pen went there and said I promise you I will stop all your jobs going to Poland which of course she wouldn't have been able to do and he said we can't stop this but what we've got to do is put in place a series of different things in order to make sure that you don't suffer as a result of jobs changing uh, jobs changing and i think this really is quite a big lesson at the moment people on the left and center left the center left 
are pretty much actually, to use that terrible word, disenfranchised. There is, at the moment, no substantial force that they feel that they can put their weight behind. That's the, and, and so actually, they're waiting out this election. This is, a, this is a lost election, as far as a large section of the British population are concerned. But France has kind of suggested that you might be able to create a movement, because things have changed. Old party allegiances are altering now. And although the first-past-the-post system is a very, very big barrier, to get over, it's not actually, I think, the huge barrier that it would have been 10, 15, 20 years ago when people's party allegiances were much more steady. So maybe, and maybe I'm just being too hopeful, and maybe I'm just kind of trying <laughs> to wish for something that I want for myself and trying to find the mechanisms whereby it will happen. Maybe there is a lesson from Macron in creating something new. Katie, one of the things that struck me about... Um Macron's win was the it was painted as being oh this has stopped the sort of populist rise and this big shake up that's happening in politics but actually he did he was part of that and as much as he was breaking the political system it's the first time for decades that someone outside the mainstream parties had, had won the election so people in the centre might say oh no he, he's not part of that because they they like him and they agree when they consider it a good thing which is why they draw distinction between that and Donald Trump and Brexit and that sort of thing but somebody coming through and breaking open that political system and and not being shackled in in some way is still part of that people the sort of the public mood for change isn't it absolutely it's that kind of um we're we're bored with the same old uh offering that we've had for years on end i actually thought we might see it from the labor party more by now that you may have had some of those moderates in the Labour Party who are staring into the next 20 years as an MP thinking what the hell have I got going for me other than to break free and try it, try it. Uh, I thought we might see it before we may see it since you know we may see it yet but um, you know I, I sat back and watched uh, from Downing Street watched Trump victory and I was astonished actually at how uh, it, was, it was a vote for the anti-establishment candidate but more than that he wouldn't actually do the things that we did so something would come on, uh, on TV about him and he'd just call in and start ranting on TV and you know all the people that would be employed to do my job you know to make sure that everything was scripted and crafted and you know delivered in the right way in a strategic plan communications delivery on the famous grid he ignored all of that he absolutely ignored it and said i'm not having this it's my name on the ballot paper and i'm going to be calling up and telling them that this is exactly what it is and the public loved it they absolutely lapped it up and they lapped it up not just those right wingers in texas they lapped it up when they were out of jobs in car factories across across, across the states so he was the anti-establishment candidate the problem that macron will have is that People forget that quite quickly, and he becomes the establishment. This is a Boris, this is a Boris Johnson problem. That actually, in term two, uh, when he stood for London mayor, he was the establishment. And you, you can't campaign against yourself like that anymore. You worked on both of Boris's campaigns. How big a change did you have to make then from the sort of outsider? almost joke candidate the first time around to suddenly he had a record to defend and that sort of thing. Or you, you just keep on trying to portray him as a... The, the, the good, I, I worked on the first one much more than I did the second, but, but the what we tried to maintain was the fact that he doesn't fit the mould he will speak exactly speak his mind he will say exactly what he feels um, and that was the most attractive thing about for Boris Johnson as Mayor of London uh, and they decided that actually compared to all the other candidates on offer they'd still go for the man and the thing is that, that what people don't really understand uh, about Trump and the Boris Johnson of this world is that people price it in. They price in that it might go a bit wrong. They price in that actually, uh, you know, he might go a bit off course. 
but they like anything but vanilla. Mm. And so uh, that, that just shows that you know, Macron took, took the opportunity and thought, I can offer them something different whilst not being you know, as crazy as some, something else is on offer. It may be that you're too young to remember this, um, but... What Thatcher, did, what Thatcher did <laughs> running into running up after 1793 was she actually ran as the insurgent insider uh, I, am, I might be running things but I still face all these obstacles and all these other people who are trying to kind of get in my way and Theresa May's done that too Theresa May's tried to do that she's done that somebody's been in Cameron. government for seven years she's still defining herself against the Cameron Regime. That's because she, what she offers is, she believes, is genuinely different. That actually, the, under David Cameron, he moved the party on significantly from a t- to make them more electable again. But what she's doing is that she's appealing to that middle ground who felt that they've been ignored all that time. I called it, when I was in number 10, the gerbil wheel of life. You're pedalling really fast and getting nowhere. And she felt that the, the David Cameron had looked after those on the very bottom and those at the top could look after themselves. But there's a large amount of people in the middle that have been ignored and that policies have kind of ignored them and uh, so she's definitely going after that vote so in a way Theresa May has tried to make herself look very different from the norm too and Cully is there any sort of polling evidence of there being an opportunity in the UK for the sort of thing that we've seen happen in France? Um, well we haven't seen it yet um, I mean just on the point of for example the Trump and in France I know certainly the work that we've done in the States and France up until the election showed you know people really wanted a sort of strong leader but someone who'd sort of break up the rule book a little bit so they sort of wanted this sort of disruptive kind of new leader and I suspect you know Macron and Trump both fulfilled that category I think one of the other interesting things about the Macron um, and Le Pen vote is it's almost a slight reverse of the Brexit in terms of the type of people who voted for Le Pen and the type of people who voted for Brexit in France there was a much younger age profile of people who voted for Le Pen and it was to do with unemployment whereas Brexit it was very much swayed towards the older um, sort of population much stronger Brexit votes so it that's quite interesting so in terms of building up that sort of centre ground I think that's quite a huge sort of obstacle to overcome. It was striking that that Macron did much better with older voters which doesn't totally fit your yeah. expectation but maybe that's they remember sort of far right exactly regimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah the reaction the reaction to that and so then if we look ahead then to um the labor party there was an attempt i think uh, but at the start of this year by the team around jeremy corbyn they they briefed that they were going to try and turn him into this sort of donald trump character and they were going to double down on negative stories and all that sort of thing and there was, it it felt like there was probably an appetite for it. He just wasn't very good at executing that as a strategy. Do you think that's... No, there's, the problem is the left doesn't do populism very well. <laughs> the right does populism far, far better than the left does. It's very difficult for the left to do populism. Um, you know, because it's all... You know, often it's about the underdogs and the you know, real underdogs. The right often says, you're an underdog when actually you're the overdog. Um, <laughs> and that's why it's so particularly dangerous, because it means you can identify minorities as being the problem whereas actually the problem with the left is it might identifies the majority as being the problem and therefore it kind of doesn't do it doesn't do so well and the other thing is if you're going to be a left populist you have to have a really kind of convincing story to tell what you can't be is a kind of terrible old superannuated you know grizzled old trot really and katie if you were in downing street now how worried would you be about a massive poll lead? Because it's 
as David was reminding us, we've still got quite a long way to go yet. Oh God! <laughs> and <laughs> loving every trying bit to it, keep you? trying to keep a campaign going, and it, and crucially, get people to turn out on June the eighth is difficult if everyone thinks they know what's going to happen. It is difficult and uh, that is the biggest concern. I'll always remember working on Boris Johnson's campaign and working with a wonderful Sir Linton Crosby who I learned a lot from. He would absolutely go crazy if there was any suggestion that we might be ahead in the polls. We came from 10 points away in the polls in order to, to overtake in the last kind of 48 hours, 72 hours and that's exactly the kind of race he wants. Uh, but they uh, they need to keep, keep on doing what they're doing but realise that the message needs to be about actually you can rely on Theresa May to deliver the things that she said you can rely on so it's one of those uh, messages that needs to, to ram home which is if you want that strong leadership I've said it again you're going to tell me off but if you want it you've got to go out and vote for it Casey, That's what- Casey I think your rule book's got to be thrown should be thrown out of the window for this election I really really do for democratic reasons Theresa May has the perfect opportunity to tell people the hard truths because she's going to win anyway. And if she doesn't do it, she will have thrown away the opportunity to get a proper mandate in the next over the next five years. And people will turn round on her and say, you haven't done the things that you said you were going to do and you weren't up front with us. And she could do that. She really could. She won't, she won't lose anything by doing it. Uh, but I'm afraid that this kind of position of incredible carefulness will throw away the enormous advantage which she has. Blair found this Blair discovered this to his own cost and she may be about to discover it don't you think I think that there is room to do more and whether or not we see that in the next few few weeks on some more policy discussions rather than just leadership discussions I think there's definitely room to do more and they may take that advantage but don't forget you know they're not just thinking about the Theresa this Theresa May victory they are working seat by seat across the country to turn that into the strongest majority possible um, and they'll be working out what works in different parts of the country what kind of messages they need need there it, it's not all just you know from one office in Whitehall you know directing the rest of the country so uh, but but their message now will will change from you know that, that what you want from Theresa May to what is it you can rely on her to deliver and they will paint Theresa May as someone who can be trusted to deliver as opposed to a Der- Jeremy Corbyn who flip-flops around issues and from the, the one morning to the afternoon him and his team can't even work out how much a police officer costs <laughs> Well, if you want to play the numbers game, you can join in with the red box sweepstake where we're asking you to predict the number of seats that the Tories will get and the number of seats the Labour Party will get. Uh, you can email us redbox at uk or tweet using the hashtag redboxsweepstake. Um, and we're at timesredbox on Twitter. Do, do, do any of you want to join in with guessing how many seats the Tories and the Labour Party are going to no. get? No. I think that's a dangerous right, thing for me. Good. Well done, everybody. Uh, well, <laughs> whips, uh, that's all we've got time for uh, this week. Thank you as ever to, for listening to the Red Box podcast. You can sign up to my morning email political briefing at the times.co.uk forward slash red box but for now from katie perrier cully corbaligan david aronovich and me matt Cholly, it's goodbye thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday 